0: Living the good life of the gospel is always a challenge when we live in a wider culture that defines the good life in other ways. Writes Tim Chester, It is particularly hard in a culture where newspapers cannot be trusted and politicians are corrupt. A harsh, selfish, racist culture in which there is a fear of crime. A culture where people are reluctant to do manual work, which is therefore left to migrant workers a culture in which people routinely overeat. I'm speaking, of course, of first century Crete. One of Crete's own prophets said of its people, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Crete was proverbial in the ancient world for immorality, which made it the perfect place for the gospel. And so, together with Titus, Paul had planted many churches there. Now, sometime later, Paul is writing to his young protege what we could call an apostolic manual for church planting. We have in the book of Titus a blueprint for how to build healthy churches. Paul wants to make clear throughout the book that God creates and cultivates genuine faith by the power of the gospel. And that a true understanding of the gospel leads to godliness. In order to promote a healthy understanding of that gospel, Paul writes mainly about teaching. And a really simple way to summarize Titus is get good teachers in place and then let them teach. So an easy way to remember Titus, if you want to remember what the book is about in general, is to just remember the word teach. You can even do a fun mnemonic device and say, Titus teaches. Titus teaches. We're going to learn from Titus if you want a, an overview of the entire book that God desires for his churches to be orderly, to be led by godly men. He desires for them to be healthy, adhering to sound doctrine. And he desires his churches to be lovely, that's marked by attractive and Christ-like Lives. We'll come to all of these themes in their turn, but today we're going to turn our attention to Paul's short beginning. And he, Paul begins this very uh, compact and pregnant letter by telling us about his authority, his goal, his hope, his preaching, and his protege. And so that's going to be our outline this morning. Paul's authority, Paul's goal, Paul's hope, Paul's preaching, and Paul's protege. No, the main idea that I want you to take with you and meditate on this week, as you you can probably not just read the first four verses of Titus while we're in this series. You can probably read the whole book. It's only three chapters and around 46 total verses, I think. You can check my math on that. But it's not terribly terribly long, and so if you just read Titus every day, you'll know it better than I do before you get here on Sunday. And so you can you can check me on things and just see what God will do through his word. It's really awesome. But, but the main idea I want you to keep in your mind, the spirit morning and probably throughout the book is that God creates and cultivates faith and godliness through his word. God creates and cultivates faith and godliness through his word. Let's pray together and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given to us your word and that you give us the opportunity to submit to it, to be challenged by it, to be shaped by it. Lord, we thank you that In Christ, you have called us your beloved, that you have made us absolute beauties. And we thank you also for the truth that right now we are not yet perfect. We're not yet perfectly beautiful, but that we are in that sweet process of sanctification wherein you make us in practice what you've already declared us to be in truth. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be making us even more beautiful today as you hammer home the truth of your word. As you knead it into our hearts. God, give us ears to hear. This we ask in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. That's all one sentence in the Greek, and I thought did a good job bringing it. It's one long sentence. Gotta love Paul. It's complicated a little bit. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul introduces himself as a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, which is not insignificant. And so we're going to look at each of these monikers in turn. First, Paul calls himself a slave of God. And this is the only place in the entire New Testament that he designates himself as such. And the reasoning is is that he's concerned with authority and and though the meaning from slave of Christ which is his typical designation it's not really different the wording here gives us a it suggests a direct connection to others who have also uh, borne that title or worn that title themselves slaves of God and so Paul is giving us a connection with men such as Moses and as David We also know of the word slave or bond, servant, servant here, whatever your translation says. These type of people, they don't act on their own authority, but on the authority of their master. And so what Paul is doing here on the front end of the letter, it's twofold. He is placing himself in the sacred line of those who have served as God's spokesman, and he's making clear the authority by which he speaks. He's saying, it's not my authority that brings this message to you. It's God's authority. Paul's authority, it's also what he has in mind when he writes the phrase an apostle of Jesus Christ. When we studied the book of Galatians together, we pointed out that this word apostle means one who was sent, but, but in the New Testament it has a general usage and a particular usage. The general sense, the word is used, uh, for example, of Epaphroditus in Philippians. Uh, Paul calls him your apostle and minister to my need, or, or in 2 Corinthians, there are some men from the churches of Macedonia. They help Paul take money to a poorer church in Jerusalem. They're called apostles of the church. And so generally, anybody who is sent can be an apostle, a small a apostle is how he remembered it when we went through Galatians. This is just one who is sent. Paul, though, however, he is employing the particular use of the word apostle. He's claiming to be what we called a big A or a capital A apostle. And big A apostles are unique in that they don't exist anymore because in order to be a big A, an authoritative apostle, one had to actually walk with Jesus or experience Jesus in a, a physical, personal way, right? Paul is among that unrepeatable band of big A apostles who, according to Ephesians 2.20, together with the prophets of old, wrote and taught the truth that is the foundation of the church. Now, some of you are sharp, and you've gone, wait a minute, he just said they had to be with Jesus. Paul was not a disciple, so how does he meet this qualification? Well, if, you, if you remember how he meets this qualification, is in Acts 9 when he is converted, right? He's converted to Jesus, by Jesus, to preach the gospel about Jesus. We see that he is commissioned by Jesus. I love Luke gives us a little peek behind the curtain in Acts 9, uh, verse 15. Ananias doesn't want to be around Paul. Paul's in the process of being converted and coming to Christ. And Ananias is like, hey, I've heard of Paul, God. I know you want me to go to him, but that sounds like a really bad idea. And so Jesus says to Ananias of Paul, he says this to him, he says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul is saved by God to serve God. I mean, Paul had the great privilege, along with others, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of explaining and expounding the truth about God and his great plan of salvation. And so consequently, when Paul, as a big A apostle, writes Titus, he is writing the very words of God. This means when you read Titus, you are hearing the voice of Christ. How often do we and others cry out to God for for some message, some dream, or some vision? God, if you would only reveal yourself to me, you could prove yourself to me. Just speak to me now. How many times do we ask these silly questions while ignoring the fact that he has revealed himself? He has spoken and he speaks in his word. I mean, how often do you ask God to speak to you instead of listening to what he is already saying in the scriptures? Many of us are guilty of this, I think in part, because there's not a lot of disciplined submission to Scripture uh, in the contemporary church or in our lives. Bibles treated more like an energy drink for our emotions rather than a meal that will sustain us. We come to it as if it were an ice cream Sunday rather than meat and potatoes. And a quick pick-me-up. Something that just tastes good and sweet. And so w- we go to those parts that we really like and, and we get that quick pick-me-up and then we put it down rather than disciplining ourselves to study it, to submit to it, and to be shaped by it. I think a, a good example of this is, uh, do y'all remember the WWJD bracelets a few years, a few years back? It's like, it's a cool fad. Everybody had them, the WWJD. Every now and then an athlete will have in his eye black now. And it said, what would Jesus do? And I think that Christians were always encouraged in every situation to ask, what would Jesus do in this situation? And and, and while I think this was well-intended and likely remains helpful to many, I'm not a huge fan of it because I think it, it, it does a disservice to us. Because can we really know what Jesus would do in any particular situation with any degree of certainty? I mean, our God is not an easy character to pigeonhole. And Jesus, often in the New Testament, when we see him, he acts in unexpected ways. I mean, if I am you know, doing somebody's funeral, for instance, and, and I'm getting ready to preach, and I have my WWJD bracelet on, I say, what would Jesus do in this situation? I, Jesus is going to tell this guy to get up and live. And so I say, all right, Jesus is going to tell this guy, get up and live, rise, come forth, Lazarus. Right? And I, I lay one of those out, I've made a fool of myself. Then again, Jesus didn't raise every person he came across that was dead in the New Testament either. So how would I know who to tell to to get up and live and, and who to stay six feet under? I mean, I could speculate on some of those decisions myself, you know. The point is, is I can only speculate about what Jesus would or would not do in any particular situation. So this exercise is mostly unhelpful. A much more helpful for the Christian is not what would Jesus do, but what does God's word say? We don't have to speculate. We don't have to wonder what God would tell us to do. We can look in his word and see what it says. There's wisdom there. My point ultimately here is that uh, we are more likely to speculate and to pontificate about what God might do or say then we are to take him at his word. Then we are to listen to what he is saying. Which is foolish because ultimately God creates and cultivates faith and godliness through his word which takes us to the goal of Paul's ministry. He says, I am God's man writing God's word to God's people. Paul says, that's why I'm writing you, Titus. That's why I do what I do in ministry. The goal of my ministry is the creation and cultivation of faith for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which will lead them into godliness. Look at verse 1. Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The goal of Paul's ministry is to bring those whom God has chosen to saving faith. And so he preaches the gospel to everyone confident that those whom are God's elect will respond with faith. And faith brings real people from real death into real life. I mean, imagine seeing a dead person in the street, hypothetically, and you walk up to him and you say, man, you need to get your act together. You really improve your life if you got a job, um, if you, you maybe wore some clothes, found a home. You can stay at my place even. I'll help you get on your feet. No matter how persuasive your arguments might be to that dead person, he's not going to change. Why? Because he's dead, Right? Dead people don't do things. I mean, this is the picture that we are given of ourselves in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Remember, we've been there many times. We we learned that in the first three verses that prior to knowing Jesus Christ, we are dead in our sin. We are children of wrath. And then there's that wonderful part in verse 4. That beautiful, but God. And we read there, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. God breathes life into his people, and his people respond with faith. I think Paul's life is actually one of the greatest examples of this truth. If you remember, before Jesus rescues Paul, he goes by the name of Saul and is a bona fide killer of Christians. Acts 9-1 describes him this way, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if, if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Elsewhere we learn that he approved of Stephen's execution and he held coats so that others could hurl stones. Saul was a terrorist to the church. Think To to help us conceive of how anti-Christian Saul was, we might think of him not as Saul of Tarsus, but as Saul of Isis. This was a bad dude. He did not like God's people. He was a ruthless cutthroat. He was ravaging the church. And it was this sinful Saul whose life is interrupted by Jesus in Acts 9.3. As Paul traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus. The one you are persecuting. Notice here how closely Jesus identifies with his church. Paul is persecuting Christians. He's persecuting the church. And Jesus identifies with his people in such a way that he says, you are persecuting me. What you do to my people, you do to me, Saul. I am the one you are persecuting. The church is important there. That one's for free, not in my notes. He replied, but get up. Go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So here we have Saul, the great persecutor of the church, made into a great apostle of Jesus Christ because Jesus loved Paul, chose to rescue Paul. We, we, we learn that again in, in verse 15, which we've already quoted, that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. kings and the children of israel paul is converted to jesus by jesus and commissioned to preach the gospel about jesus paul is saved by god to serve god god breathes life into his people and his people respond with faith I love how rap artist Shylin explains this doctrine of election, that's what it's called, that's what we're talking about, uh, and he explains it in his song, which bears that title, and for those of you that have been waiting for the encore rap performance, here it is, right? It's my, my dirty secret, I, w- I wanted to be a rapper, I couldn't quite make it, uh, and so I quote rappers in, in my sermons, it's one t- fun times. <clears throat> this is what Shylin writes. God in his perfection wrote the doctrine of election because he's sovereign, there's no question, and that got some people stressing, but no option but election can account for our protection, godly direction, and perfected bodily resurrection. Yo, don't let the thinking of modern men fool you. God does what he wants. That's what it means to be sovereign ruler. It's deep but not complicated with complete confidence. I'll state it. Peep it. It's how God has always operated. He's the greatest, fam. His amazing plan made his hand save the man Abraham from the pagan land. Who can argue with the people that God chooses? Israel and not Egypt. Peter and not Judas. Humanly speaking, it should have been Saul but not David. The inheritance should have been Esau's and not Jacob's. The truth, it speaks brightly so you can see it rightly. A huge, mighty God who chooses the least likely Still, some contest it as a phony doctrine. But if we're really dead in sin, predestination is the only option. With reservations, some fume inside. There's hesitation because it's devastating to human pride. This truth is the sober kind that you're prone to find in passages like Romans 9. It's so divine it'll blow your mind. We are the clay. We've been formed by the potter. None can come to the sun unless they're drawn by the Father. And a few verses later, he recounts his own conversion. He says this, I was a swollen corpse with hope no more until Jehovah the Lord dove from the shore to the ocean floor. Yeah, I was a corpse and I smelt like it. I'll keep it simple. Why did God choose me? Because he felt like it. He brought me out, not an act of my volition, breathed life into my lungs and didn't ask for my permission. Throughout the Bible, there's major examples of this, pages of passages like the raising of Lazarus. Rather than debating the master's gift, we should happily praising him, we should be happily praising him for his magnanimous saving of savages. It's time we see God's sovereignty and his primacy, his holy dynasty, running things by divine decree. Why does God choose some and not others to see Jesus or God is in the heavens He does whatever he pleases. And so his song concludes. The doctrine of election, which is perhaps best laid out for us in the first chapter of Ephesians if you want to read some more for homework, it really is devastating to human pride. It shows us once more that the gospel we believe is not man's gospel but God's. Because if we made it up, it would be something we could do on our own to obtain salvation. We're a people that likes to do it Ourself, I think Pinterest is great evidence of this. That devil Pinterest, some of you—it's like a arts and crafts website you go on. And there's always a picture, and things on there look really good. And it says follow these steps, and you'll be able to make this beautiful picture, or, or whatever it is. Like a, it's usually uh, an edible of some type, like a cake. Uh, and then you do it. You—I don't do it, but my wife does it. Follows the directions, and it comes out, and the cake is destroyed. It doesn't look—not destroyed. She does a good job, but it doesn't look anything like the picture. <laughs> you get in trouble. <laughs> but it doesn't look anything like the original picture. And, and I think sometimes we, we, we think of our salvation like that. We go, here is the picture of salvation. Here, here's the list of things that I need to do. I just need my list. And then that's something I can do. And it'll look semi-like that it, it, it'll work. But as people, we, we, we are doers. We want to DIY it. But that's just not how salvation works. Jesus does it for us. He doesn't give us a list of instructions to follow, but himself. He says, don't, not, hey, keep all the commandments. No, I've kept all the commandments. Put your faith in me. The question of Christianity isn't, what can I do, but who should I trust? Who should I trust? That's what God does for us in the gospel is he comes to us in our weakness as we are swollen corpse beneath the ocean. He plucks us out of life and bre- he breathes life into our lungs, true life, so that we might know him. Christianity is always a religion of done rather than do. I love what Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 says uh, about God's care for us. Says, God shows us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for Himself, according to His favor and will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He favored us with in the Beloved. I mean, don't miss the gravity of this truth. That God, before time began, knowing that if He created you and I, that we would sin against Him and rebel, chose to create us and love us anyway. I mean, that's astounding. This boundless love of God, it should should leave you breathless. God has loved you before the world began. Now, I know that this is one of the sharper points of the gospel, the the doctrine of election. It's it's one of its sharper edges. And, And so it causes many to be unsettled. And and truth be told, it used to unsettle me quite a bit as well. Uh, And and eventually, God needed it into me, and and I've come to love it. It gives me great security. But but I do think most of the unrest or or being unsettled by it comes primarily from thinking, if God is in complete control of everything, then we're just robots. And, And do my choices really matter? But I think this is unbiblical. I think it's unbiblical thinking because in the Bible we see god's sovereignty and our free and responsible choices exist in harmony. I mean scripture holds out both truths together that god is in complete control that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will and that even the number of hairs on your even the hairs on your head is numbered and that human beings make choices and those choices matter. I mean how exactly both are true at the same time is one of those great mysteries of the bible. But as Christians, we believe this is solved in the person of God. Theologians re- use a, a fancy term to, re- to refer to this. It's an antinomy is what they call it. It's an antinomy is a seeming contradiction between two true conclusions, both of which have been obtained by correct reasoning. More simply, both statements are true, but we don't know how. For the Christian, we, we trust that God knows how and that we don't need to. I love what Dr. Akin says. He, he, he writes this. Paul believed God elected and predestined people to be saved, but did so in such a way as to do no violence to their free will and responsibility to believe the gospel. Charles Spurgeon commented famously on the issue, God saves man by grace, and if men perish, they perish justly by their own fault. How, someone says, do you reconcile these two doctrines? My dear brethren, I never reconcile two friends. Never. These two doctrines are friends with one another, for they are both in God's word, and I shall not attempt to reconcile them. I think another great reason that this doctrine shouldn't unsettle you is that it didn't seem to bother Jesus, which which is usually a good litmus test for doctrine. Uh, If it doesn't bother Jesus, it shouldn't bother you, right? And if it does bother Jesus, it should bother you. But Jesus isn't troubled by this at all. He, he is the one who said, No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. He's the same one who said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, we see this doctrine is no trouble for Paul either. When the Philippian jailer asks him, What must I do to be saved? Paul doesn't look at him and say, Nothing, man. You are the elect. Got it. No. He says to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The goal of Paul's ministry is to bring those whom God has chosen to saving faith. And so he preaches the gospel to everyone, confident that those who are God's elect will respond with faith. Paul is saved by God to serve God. And so are you. You have been saved by God to enjoy him, yes. But also to serve him. Paul's mission is the disciples' mission, is our mission. And that mission is the great co-mission. Jesus' followers are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. See, God creates and cultivates faith and godliness through His Word this fact should spur us on to obedience. The truth that there are people all over the world that God has resolved to love, that he has said, I'm going to make them alive, this truth should ignite our desires to proclaim the gospel even when we're discouraged. And God has people everywhere just waiting to hear the gospel, just waiting to come to life. He's got people in this valley that are waiting for you to tell them about Jesus. Paul lived his life for the sake of God's elect, and so should we. We should spend our lives so that God's people might know him and grow in him. Where God creates faith, and we see in this big sentence of Paul's, he also cultivates it. Godliness is a byproduct of genuine faith in Christ. That's why Paul writes, the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The gospel compels us to think properly, and when we think properly about God, the consequence is, is that we feel deeply. True heart knowledge about Jesus leads to a life of affectionate obedience to Jesus. I mean, Paul was a great evangelist, but but he in no way was content with people simply coming to faith. He labored to ensure they would grow in their faith also. As he puts it in Philippians, his aim is to continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. And so our goal as Christians, too, should not terminate with the simple conversion of others, but should extend into the growth of others. We should make it our ambition to see God use our sharing of the gospel and our friendships to create and cultivate faith in others. We we should leverage every aspect of our lives to this end. We said last week, there should be a Jesus-y flavor to our lives. I think the obvious questions to ask are, how will I build relationships and share the gospel with those who have not yet heard? How will I forge new relationships in my life so that I am encountering people that do not yet know Jesus, that have not yet heard? And I think a follow-up question to that is, who am I helping grow in Christ? Who who am I around? Who am I spurring on towards Christ-likeness? I mean, I think a simple way to do this is just invite people to do stuff with you, even really lame stuff like going to the grocery store. Hey, I'm going to the grocery store. You want to come with me? And then while you're doing that, have an intentionally spiritual conversation. How's your Bible reading going? How's your marriage? While you're struggling, let's pray about that. Invite people into your home. Have, Have meals with them. And talk about God. We think and talk about what we love. Do you love Him? The question for us corporately Is how can we steward our resources as a church in such a way so that it is clear our goal is the making of disciples through the preaching of the gospel and the cultivation of disciples through the building of churches? How are we stewarding our resources to build the kingdom of God? So, what sets the Christian free and motivates the Christian to radically live like Paul, to live lives that are devoted to others? Paul provides us the answer in verse 2 by saying the security we have in Christ. See, we can live for others because we know that no matter what, we belong to Jesus. No one plucks us from his hand. No one thwarts the purposes of God. We're motivated not by the hopes of this world, but the sure hope of the next. Verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began i mean the christian life is lived in light of our certain hope for the future specifically eternal life which is the very life of god aiken comments eternal life is both a quantity of life forever and a quality of life christ in you the hope of glory what i'm attempting to, to get at here is that we can spend our lives in service to Christ on behalf of others joyfully because our greatest hopes extend beyond the grave. Or at least they should. Take a moment. Clear your minds. and I want you to to think about three things that you're hoping for. Some of you are hoping for lunch right now. That can be one of your things. Think about three things that you're hoping for. If all of your hopes are for this life, all of your hopes will end with this life. How you live now is shaped by what you believe about the future. So let me ask you, would your life be any different if you didn't believe in life after death? Paul himself champions the fact that Christians are to be pitied above everyone else if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And our hope is for this life only. Friends, if we are Jesus' people, then the fact of our faith will bear itself out in our fruit. Our lives will be cross-shaped as we give ourselves up for others, for their good. Because we know that our goal is ultimately not our best life now, but our best life when the king returns to give us every good gift. Our hope of eternal life, that to which we look, is sure. I mean, you can take it to the bank because God, who does not lie, has promised it. He promised us, a redeemed people, as a bride to his son. I mean, that's the, I think that's the promise that's going on there. So before time began, you just have God, who's the promise made to? I think it's God the Father promising God the Son that His people will have eternal life, and in turn, Jesus turns around and promises the Father to show His love for the Father by coming and dying on behalf of that redeemed, what will be a redeemed people. I mean, promised before time began. I mean, God has decided that we, those who have faith in Him can share in his joy. I mean, your conversion was an event that was planned in eternity past and that will last into eternity future. I mean, God's rescue of us is it's amazing. But then it gets, even, it gets even more amazing. You see, because Jesus entrusts us with speaking others into an encounter with himself verse 3, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Tim Chester explains this verse this way. Eternal life is brought to light in preaching. The eternal promise of God appears when we share the gospel. Eternal life appears in your town when you speak about Jesus. As you speak the gospel, eternity enters history. Christ is made present. And on a cold day, when you breathe, you can see your breath. It forms a cloud in the air. Likewise, it's almost as if something like this is happening when we share the gospel. With spiritual eyesight, we see Jesus himself taking shape. He appears and people meet him in our words. I also love says, at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching. At the proper time, Paul was entrusted with the gospel. At the proper time, Jesus came as a baby to live the perfect life and die the perfect death and to rise from the grave. God is sovereign ruler and things happen at the proper time. Reminds me of, uh, I've never actually been to one of these things, but I've heard about them. You know those auto, it's a automotive assembly lines, that all the cars coming down, and, and right, you know, it's, it's like clockwork. The, the machines, there's all these heavy arms, and they hit them with the bolt that they need, or, or I don't know anything about vehicles, but whatever part it needs, it hits as it assembles, right? I think just at the right time, I think that's how God operates in our lives. That at the proper time, things happen to us good things and bad things. That those things are happening according to his plan so that by the time we reach the end of life, well, we look just like we are supposed to. right? Almost like a completed automobile. God has you here for a purpose. He's decided that this morning would be the proper time for you to hear the good news about Christ and be encouraged by it. Maybe even saved by it for the first time. He has appointed that at this time Jesus would be made visible through the preaching of his word. People encounter Jesus through our preaching, through our sharing of the gospel. I mean this privilege and responsibility of stewarding the message of Christ. It's been it was Paul's and it's been passed down to us through the ages. God has placed his eternal plan of salvation into the hands of his church. We are to be his mouthpiece. We are to be the conduit through which the gospel and its blessings are taken to the world. God creates and cultivates faith and godliness through his word. And he has entrusted us with that word. He also entrusted Titus with it. That's why he's writing to him. Verse 4, after his really long introduction, he says, which, you know, by the way, he introduces himself first. We don't do that. That's just how they wrote letters back then. They said, hey, this is Paul writing, and then eventually to so-and-so. Now we sign our name at the end, and I think their way made more sense. Have you ever read a letter? I'm like, who is writing this to me? Anyhow, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior, Paul lets everybody know that he's writing to Titus, his true son in the common faith, the faith that he has outlined a little bit in the first three verses. I also want to note here, even though Paul writes this letter to Titus personally, it's not a private letter. It was to be read aloud in the churches. And so I imagine that Titus, every time it was read straightened up a little bit taller when this portion was read. Titus, my true son in the common faith. I mean, the infamous Paul calls him true son. It's awesome. It's awesome. And I think it gives us a great vignette of the gospel. Paul, a Jew of Jews, considers himself family with Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile. Both are reconciled in Christ. Both maintain their ethnicity. But both of them allow their common citizenship in heaven to transcend all other earthly designations. Both had been dead in sins. Both had lives interrupted and wrecked by Jesus so that they could be made new. Now the title that best describes them is not Jew or Greek, but Christian. The kingdom of God is a kaleidoscope of nations united into one people under the lordship of Christ. It's not limited to one particular group of people or a geographic space, but it invades every space as a people from every type of background, every tongue, tribe, and nation are made together alive with Christ. This kingdom, it's, it's entirely inclusive. The only requirement of the Christian nation is faith in Jesus Christ as your substitute, as your Lord and Savior. For it is by faith that you are united to him in his perfect life, his propitiatory death, and his victorious resurrection. The only thing that excludes anyone from this kingdom is their refusal to submit to the king. So non-Christian, I implore you this morning to know the joy and the satisfaction that you were meant to live for by turning from your sins and believing in Jesus. Respond to the Spirit's work in your heart. Receive the grace of God. Receive the peace of God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Allow Him to breathe life into you and respond with faith. The the reconciliatory power of the gospel, it's it's inexhaustible. I mean, there's mercy today for all who will come to Jesus and ask for him to give them rest. That's that's the message of the gospel, is to come to Jesus, all you who are weary and heavy laden. All of us who have realized we are dead in our sins, and we need to be made alive. It's this gospel that Paul writes to Titus to ensure that it's preserved wants everyone to know that Jesus died for man's sin on the cross and conquered the finality of the grave, and that he saves those who repent and trust in him rather than themselves. Paul wants Titus to protect this truth, as we'll see. Like Titus, we share in the common faith. The faith of Titus is the faith that we have. The faith that Titus was entrusted with. We have been entrusted with. We are guardians and stewards of the word of God the word that creates and cultivates faith and godliness in the people of God. Therefore, let us be fearless and faithful in our responsibility to rightly divide and preach and believe this gospel. It's God's truth. It brings life from death. Thank goodness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word thank you that you sought and found us when we were lost. When we were blind and could not see, you came to us, gave us sight. You brought light into our darkness so that we might know true joy. So that we might know what it is to truly live. Because you united us to yourself, the one true God. You are the fountain of joy infinite blessings. Help us to drink from that fountain this morning. Help us to trust you more deeply. To love you more ferociously. Let that love for you bear itself out in our godliness. In our commitment to meet here together as your people. In our commitment to serve one another. In our commitment to fulfill that great commission and to seek those that are lost and blind dead as we once were. Father, help us to love these words of life, these wonderful words of life, to preach them unto the nations, that your name might be known and that thanksgiving might go up among all the nations throughout all the earth. Oh, Father, we look forward to that day when the hills will clap their hands and the seas will raise their voices and all of creation will exult in your great glory. It's in the matchless name of Jesus I pray. Amen.